This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me, and this is also brought to you by Digital Media. Today's sponsor is SoFi. SoFi is partnering with top companies to rethink employee benefits. SoFi members who refinance student loans can save an average of $14,000 and even more savings if they go through their employers. Find out more at sofi.com slash partner. Terms and conditions apply at sofi.com. Today's show is also sponsored by Mack Weldon. They make awesome hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks. I am wearing them right now. My guest, Philip, is also wearing them. He's wearing different stuff. I'm wearing, I'm wearing the socks, Philip. You're wearing... They're underwear. They're underwear, and they're the awesome. Best. I can't really vouch for how your underwear looks, but I think it feels <laughs> great, right? I constantly talk about it. I'm getting paid to talk about it, but I pay for them with my own money as well. They are naturally antimicrobial, which means that you smell good in them. You can wear them to work. You can wear them to work out. You could even wear them to go to a podcast. They're easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off with your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. I cannot imagine you will not like these products, but if you don't like them, let MacWeldon know. They will send you your money back. You keep them, no questions asked. Again, that's 20% off. If you use the promo code RECODE, go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. How was that for a live ad, Philip? It was beautiful. It was definitely straight from the heart. So it felt it, very relevant. I'm wearing the socks. You're wearing the underwear. How could it not be more heartfelt? It's truly authentic. So I'm talking to Philip von Borges. Did I get your name correct? That's correct. You are co-CEO, co-founder of Refinery29. Yes. Thanks for coming. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. It's been an amazing show. You did, you did an awesome job with the pre-roll ad, so we're already monetizing. That's good. Um, I think a lot of folks are going to know what Refinery29 is, but for the handful that don't, explain what it is in plain English. Yeah. Refinery is a media company for women, young women predominantly. We produce content, original content, in categories from style, which is sort of our backbone, to women's health and beauty and wellness and Global issues, politics. So you're a digital publisher. Yep. I imagine you pitch yourself sort of when you go to investors and advertisers as we're the next generation of Condé Nast. Is that a fair summary of what you guys think you're up to? Not quite because we don't think of ourselves as a portfolio of brands. We really think of ourselves as building one umbrella brand, one global brand that speaks to women, probably the most powerful generation of women ever. So maybe the next generation of Vogue. How about that? Sure. I think You're that would be. I think, that. I'd be I think, happy to be Vogue. Well, if if Vogue is a stand-in for an amazing legacy brand that means something to people around the world and is obviously focused on women, then yes. But we're doing it differently with a different voice and perspective. So you guys have been around much longer than I than I realized until I was doing my very serious research this weekend. I think if you was a couple of years old, you're actually much older than that. I want to talk about your history. But just to set the stage, give us a sense of where you're at now. How big is the site? How many folks are you serving? So we're coming up on 11 years, actually. We launched in, in July of 2005. We have about 400 people at Refinery29. We reach about 25 million people who come to refinery29.com directly. And over 150 million people distributed on all the various platforms. You're getting people through Facebook, Snapchat, Facebook, et cetera. Snapchat, Pinterest, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. And we've built a sizable business. This year, we'll come up on comfortably going to a nine-figure business. Nine-figure, that's advertising revenue primarily, it's advertising right? revenue. It's a real business. It's become a real business. It's an actual company. So when, when you guys started out 11 years ago, yeah. you and your partner? Justin. Justin. What was the plan then? It wasn't, was it to build a $100 million advertising business, or were you trying to do something else? No, not at all. So we launched Justin, who's my partner in crime, we're co-CEOs. We launched close to 11 years ago. We were both living in Brooklyn at the time. 
and realizing that there was this amazing creative moment of small artisans and makers emerging in Brooklyn and, you know, lower Manhattan, people who, you know, were launching lines and designers and new brands and boutiques. And well, we realized, what, what were you doing at the time when you had this realization? So I was working at a political startup in D.C. called The Globalist, and I moved back to New York with Justin and I had gone to high school together, and we both had an entrepreneurial itch. We're in our you know young 20s, didn't have much to lose. So this is 2005-ish? 2005-ish. 2005-ish. The internet was a thing, the now it's not. very different. Right? MySpace is a big site then? <laughs> MySpace is a big site. There was no Facebook, right? There was, email was your main driver of being able to get people to come back to you. You know, these are the glory days of sort of early media startups like Gothamist in New York was a big thing. Gawker was on the scene. And we realized that we wanted to do something that appealed to people's sense of individuality. And so was the thought, though, let's start a website. What should the website be about? Let's start a company. What should the company be? It should be a digital thing. Let's start a fashion thing. What was the sort of what? It's one thing to say, well, there is a bunch of guys making artisanal yeah. pickles. Yeah. What got you to decide we want to start a company, period? The thought was to create a website that really brought a different perspective to style by sort of going against the grain of the Vogue's and Glamour's and all these other publications that had existed for a long time and appealed to people's individuality. Highlight the people that were just sprouting up and launching new businesses but with a certain into, point of view. But were you just really fashion guys? I mean... No, but we cared about design. We cared about aesthetics. We cared about creativity. And that's what we came from because we had a creative community. And it were also to my wife, by the way, who is a co-founder at Refinery29 as well. And uh, our editor-in-chief, Christine, who is also a co-founder, who came from media, who came from fashion. And it was about a certain aesthetic, and it was about a point of view, and it was about celebrating individuality and celebrating self-expression and creativity in this community of makers that were emerging. And that's what we wanted to bring together. And so what was the initial business then? The initial business was basically a mixture of content and a platform that allowed you to discover these brands and these stores. So when we first launched, we had the refinery was actually a map that brought together the 29 best individual stores That's the in 29. New York City. That's the 29. So it's, it sounds almost more like Daily Candy, right? Like go to these places, go buy things from these Daily places. Daily Candy is a great reference. Daily Candy is a great reference. Actually, back then, we would pretend to be like a small business and get the rate sheet from Daily Candy and study their business. But Daily Candy had something that was... This that is an email newsletter for, email for, newsletter for young business, people. Right? Danny Levy had launched it, had gotten very very successful because it was a local business driving people into local stores. But Daily Candy had a different approach, right? It was really sort of a very girly version of the world. And what we wanted to do was create something that felt individualized, that felt artisanal, that felt creative. And even when we launched, by the way, this is a very important point, we didn't just launch as a website for women. It was actually for both men and women. It wasn't a pinkified world of style. If you look at our like early versions of Refinery, it was this like kind of cool representation of what we thought the world of style was becoming. But women were the ones who cared. Women were the ones who, you know, showed up to our events, who read our content. And because it wasn't just a world that was geared just to women in the traditional way of women's media, women actually responded in all the right ways. And you guys quit your day jobs to do this? Or, or you sort of had, you have your feet in both things for a while? I quit my day job to do it. Justin, 
who was working for New York City government, actually investigating cops in the outer boroughs of Manhattan, was doing his job for like another six months before we both jumped two feet in and started to get into it. And so 2005, you started a website. It is not common to start a website in 2005. It's not a content business. Not a lot of folks are doing it. Uh, how'd you get the money? So for the first 10 months, we, you know, we basically scraped together like $15,000 to get the thing up and running. And then we launched, when we launched Refinery29, we got a cover article in WWD, I still remember it. Headline said, Independence Day at Refinery29, because it was all about celebrating these independent makers. And so within a couple of weeks thereafter, we met this prolific designer, New York designer called Stephen Allen. And some people may know him, some people are not, but he has really incredible stores and he has a great line. And we did these neighborhood guides to New York City and of people's great, you know, uh, local discoveries. And he took us to Chinatown, to this little street called Doyers, and showed us cool stores. And we pitched him the story, and he got it because he was a local designer and he saw the virtue in you someone. You wanted him who to invest or you wanted him to we, advertise? We wanted him to invest. Yeah. And so he gave us $160,000. This was, we had no idea that you could even raise venture funding. And so he gave us $160,000. The whole process lasted like three months. We didn't even ever think we'd get through it. And every six months, he'd give us a check for $60,000 for 18 months total. So we'd pick up the $60,000. And that's how we launched. And, you know, we were always really focused on actually building a business, right? Because we didn't have a lot of money. Even $160,000 didn't get you very far. It actually lasted for like two years. But we started focusing very early on, always, on how do we make money with this thing. And so we actually built a commerce marketplace because we were building a platform for these local brands. And we started a to A commerce also, marketplace is what? Like a literal marketplace of local New York City boutiques where you could shop from all the boutiques together. could go and buy a thing together. online from a store in New York. Exactly. But not only that, you could do it across like five stores and it'd be like consolidated checkout and drop shipping. So early on, you're, you're really a commerce site with some content around it. But the content was always the thing that differentiated it. The commerce piece was really our attempt to say, okay, how do we, what's our first way of making money here? So we build a commerce business, but the content was the thing that drove people back. So we'd go into a store and we'd you know, photograph the things that had been shipped overnight because these stores didn't have e-commerce. And we'd highlight the stories behind the designers. And we started to produce content that just spoke to this generation of consumers very differently. It was about, you know, storytelling. It was about creativity, and it highlighted a group of people that just wasn't being featured. But commerce was the first way of making money out there. So we make money on this podcast by having awesome sponsors. Yeah. We'll tell you about them right now. This episode is brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is transforming the financial world by offering great rates on things like student loan refinancing, personal loans, and mortgages. It's a simple process. They look at your financial potential, and if there's promise, they back you for life which means when you borrow with SoFi, you get an awesome set of perks too. Career services, member happy hours, networking events, unemployment protection, even an entrepreneur program. The idea is that SoFi succeeds when their members succeed. So they'll do all they can to help their members out. Learn more about what they can do at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. 
Today's episode of Recode Media is also brought to you by FrameBridge. FrameBridge is a cool Washington, D.C. startup that's disrupting the traditional framing market. You didn't know it needed to be disrupted, but it does because traditional framing costs a ton of money. FrameBridge makes it easy. They'll frame anything. They send you a mailing kit, put your artwork in there, your posters, album covers. You can even print out your Instagram pictures, whatever you want. You send it to them. They send it back to you in days fully ready to hang. I've got a ton of photos I need to take off my phone and frame as well. We just spent Easter weekend up in the Catskills doing lots of really photogenic things like hunting for Easter eggs and chasing kids around. Those will eventually look good somewhere in our house. So I'm looking forward to FrameBridge's help there. It's easy. It's also cheap. Pricing starts at just $39. Even better, all shipping is free. You want more? Okay, here's more. There's a special offer for our listeners this month. Just visit framebridge.com, enter the offer code RECODE at checkout. You get 15% off your first FrameBridge order. That's framebridge.com. Use our special offer code RECODE. You get 15% off. Thanks, FrameBridge. See, that was a pretty good ad. So, Philip, so we were talking about the evolution of Refinery29. Yeah. And, and you, I don't think pivot's a bad word. You, you might not like it. But you guys have, have moved back and forth to sort of different business models. We were talking about one of your first ones, which was sort of setting up a commerce marketplace, helping local New York merchants sell stuff. And then you've, you've evolved since then. So where did you head next? What was interesting is that while we set up that marketplace, we were constantly producing content because, again, this is you know the era of pre-social, and the only way to get people to come back was always about content. We felt passionate about content. It's a very important point. And what what started to happen is that we had a commerce marketplace, but uh, and made up of small independent brands. But other large brands started to show up and say. That's very cool because we started to get a lot of street cred in New York, right? Like people in the fashion community and the design community started by word of mouth spreading the story about Refinery29. It was very organic and that really started to happen. And so brands like Ralph Lauren would show up and say, hey, how can we play a role in this entire thing? And so we actually built a a store for Ralph Lauren, the brand, within our marketplace. And it was an advertising buy. And so that was our very, very first moment of realizing, hey, we have a unique point of view that speaks to people differently, and brands are coming to us in ways in which we can monetize it through advertising, but in a very contextually relevant way. This is another word for what we now call native ads. In call it native, way. call it branded content. I think you know, definitions range and so you go, and wide. you go from a commerce sort of model to one that's now in almost entirely advertising, right? Almost entirely advertising, Because there, yeah. there was a period where people would say, oh, content and commerce are a thing, and, and websites can have advertisements, and they also make money selling stuff, and they would always bring you guys up as examples. Was there a point where you're sort of doing both at the same time? There was a little while we were doing both at the same time, but very quickly, early on, you know, in year two or three, we realized that advertising was the business that was allowing us to build a meaningful business and was telling our story in the right ways. So, you know, commerce is an insanely hard business, especially third-party commerce. It's low margins. You're dealing with a world in which, you know, you have huge players like Amazon making your life impossible. And our strength was creating engagement. And it was about creating stories that matter to people and that were relevant to people. And we weren't trying to sell people something directly, our audience. We were just telling them how to find cool things out in the world. And brands started to take note. And so we became really good early on at telling their stories. This is also a result of us realizing that, hey, we weren't going to make a big business back then selling display advertising and pre-roll. 
So another example of you this- fi- You figured out you weren't going to do that or you were going to do that? Well, you know, we had a relatively small audience. Right. Right, and so, but we had a deeply engaged audience. You said we're not going to be big enough to load this thing up with display ads and make real money from that, um, which when, is what a lot of people who are big now have decided as well. Yeah, it's a that's a hard business to make do then and now as well. If that's your entire business proposition, our proposition was: Hey, we have a deeply relevant audience, women in this case. We speak to them every day about the things that matter into their lives. Let's create experiences that weave brands into that. And so that's what we started to do very successfully, but on a very small scale. So making ads for an advertiser, you guys make them in-house, you essentially become the advertising agency, and then you sell them ads on your own site as well. We become their partner. Right, so this is now a sort of an established model, but at the time it was a new thing. It was brand new. You know, when we were doing this This in 2008, 2009, you know, I remember specifically YSL, right? A big luxury advertiser came to us and they said, hey, you know, we want to we advertise this fragrance and advertising a fragrance online is like impossible. Like nobody's going to really care. And so we said, hey, our like co-founders, Pierre and Christine, feel passionate, obviously, about this brand. This is a legacy luxury brand. And we sent them around the country because Christine had this like vintage YSL jacket and we photographed them taking a road trip to these like four different locations and told the story of YSL through this piece of clothing that she actually, you know, cared about and and had for a long time. And that was our first branded campaign. So the internet blew up the magazine business, but one thing that stayed relatively strong and still to this day is pretty strong is, is sort of the fashion part yeah. of the magazine business. Yeah. For whatever reason, Condé Nast sends me the, the fall edition of uh, the September edition of Vogue. And every year it's a bigger and bigger box eventually because they're going to need a UPS truck. It's this giant, giant, giant yeah. magazine. It's basically a bound book. And then every year, there's always someone from the internet world who comes and says, hey, we figured something out. People like looking at ads in Vogue and these printed magazines. So is there something about fashion that sort of still works particularly well in print and it's a struggle for you to sort of get over in digital? You were talking about how, how difficult it is to sell a fragrance online. Well, context always matter, matters. I think what's style is a huge category, and it's an incredibly important important category. Traditionally, actually, when you look at sort of numbers, it's been a very lucrative category, but it's been a small audience footprint. And we've cracked the code on that. In style and fashion and beauty, we're not just the largest brand, but we also have the most deeply engaged audience. And that matters because that same engagement we think about constantly when we work with brands directly. So with regards to, you know, the Vogue issue that you got that was, you know, 700 pages and had had a ton of ads... You know, this generation of consumers, and in our case, it's women 18 to 34, feel deeply, you know, cynical about just traditional advertising. To them, it's a world that doesn't really, you know, resonate. So that 700-page issue of Vogue is not resonating with your audience? I don't think it's resonating with them in the way that, you know, they think it traditionally has been. So your argument to those advertisers is, you know what, you're wasting your money. At least you're not going to reach our, our audience there. You're not going to speak successfully to a generation that wants to connect with brands differently and not through just a direct sales channel of saying, hey, here's this one product that you need to buy. Give me something that's more meaningful to me. That's the most important thing that we find every day in speaking to our audience. These, you know, people care, you know, I'm going to bring up the M word, millennials. We could talk about that later. But millennial women, from our research and everything that we've done, insights, care passionately about brands. They love them or they hate them. 
but they want to hear from them in a relevant, in an authentic fashion and not just sort of be hit over the head with, you know, a sales message. And so how do you do that? You, there's, you could make an ad for them. You could make an ad for your brand and put it on the site. You guys also do, it's a terrible word, but I'll use it anyway, experiential stuff. <laughs> events. Uh, where you, events, that's yeah. a better word, right? Yeah. So uh, talk about some of the event stuff you're doing. Uh, we do, last year alone, we probably did somewhere around 50 or 60 events. And they range from music festivals to in-store events to, to fashion shows. These and are things with your brand on them or, or they're for the advertiser's brand? or They always or. have our brand on them. But they might have our brand plus an advertiser on it as well. So at South by Southwest, we just created an event called the School of Self-Expression. And Neiman Marcus was, was an advertiser who was integrated into experience. And again, they were integrated into the experience. And it's not sort of traditional sponsorship moments. With Neiman Marcus, in this specific instance, we thought about, hey, how do we take an advertiser and seamlessly weave them into the experience by tying interesting technologies and, and, and the ability to socially share these moments in that installation you know, with your audience, with, you know, with, through social media? It's harder to scale those things, right? But it's important to do them because the brands want them. They're different than a display ad or a banner ad or even a video ad. They're well, we look at events pretty uniquely in that we really look at them as broadcast moments, right? So we hosted this event during Fashion Week in September. 10,000 people came through the events. These are public events, by the way. Not always, but very often. And they really served as a social media canvas, so people come through them, people see something cool, they tag themselves, they share it through, through social. So you put Instagram. on a show and you sort of ask the audience to amplify it for exactly. you. Exactly, exactly. And that's a key part of, again, of creating experiences that are actually resonant and meaningful. And by the way, if you're a digital brand and people show up in the real world, that's really meaningful. You guys, I saw you guys at CES, yeah. big nerd fest. You guys had a yeah. big suite at the Win with a bunch of different products. There was a special eye shade. There were cool headphones. I think there was something to let you grow your own weed. You guys weren't selling that stuff. <laughs> uh, it wasn't your product. What was the point of, of that display? You know, that specific example at CES was about, you know, our insights in and around millennial-minded women and technology. So we build out the connected home of a millennial woman. In- Who grows her own weed. Who, I, I don't actually think I, I could, saw that I, one. I, I yeah, think you I, saw something else. I, I, you, I, I, you, you had a special it's seared in my memory there. for some reason. I don't think that actually happened. But we brought in, you know, thirty-five really cool technologies and innovations, and we built out, you know, a living room and a kitchen and a bedroom, and told the story of how a, you know, millennial woman lives in this day and age or how she can live but and there, brought in people through that experience. And so the, the idea there, because you're, you're not charging the brands that you're no, displaying, not at all. So, so you're not charging anyone for that experience. The people you're bringing in, I was there with like a tour group from Unilever, and the idea, yeah. right, is to impress the people at Unilever and to impress eventual advertisers that you guys know what you're talking about and you've got some connection, right? That's sort of a... Look, you're, I want, you're sort of advertising to advertisers. The there. entire strength of Refiner29 is based on the fact that our relationship with women goes deeper than anyone else's, right? And so in this case, technology for our audience matters hugely. And of course, at CES, there is all these cool digital innovations that are happening nonstop. And so we're bringing brands and, and of course, media and journalists through that experience. So you're acting sort of as a concierge saying, here's cool stuff, we're going to save you some time, take a look at it. Exactly. If you don't want to, you know, walk the halls for six hours, here's a curated experience. And by the way, it's also cool, it's interesting. There's an aesthetic, it's stylish, you know, the opposite of CES. And you get a really good sense for how millennial women connect with technology. You mentioned millennial earlier. 
different people who do what you do have different takes on, on millennials. Some of them lean really hard on the idea that they're, they're specifically built for millennials and millennials consume media differently and we're the way that you can find millennials. And others say, no, 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 we're a media company. A big chunk of our audience is that age that happens to work very well for us. Seems like you're in that latter group. Yeah. Look, you know, the conversation about millennials is, is a really interesting one. I just actually wrote this article about it because what I've found is that it's just getting so generalized. It's insane. You know, people are looking at millennials, studying them like an alien species. And there's just, you know, a ridiculous amount of, of generalizations. And they're also the hardest to reach generation ever. But we're sort of, you know, entwined in contradictions of, you know, what... Well, the main thing they are is young, right? They're young and they're, you know, they're individuals with a broad range of interests. And we're bucketing them, continue to bucket them into just, you know, conventions and saying, oh, are they lazy or are they ambitious? You know, are they caring or they're selfish? And it's like, hey, stop. It's enough. What we have to understand is that they're actually like individuals, like you and I, with passionate interests. But they write hoverboards and they build treehouses. Oh, I read, drink, I read that article. They drink green juices. You're drinking and, green juice. You know, and they live in Brooklyn. I live in Brooklyn. I'm not a millennial. <laughs> um, so you didn't set out to build this thing for millennials. We, we talked about your story in the beginning. You, no. You, I mean, you sort of ended up with a site that attracted younger readers. And then we also you mentioned at the beginning of, the, of our conversation, you said well, our, our core audience that visits the site is this big, and then we have a much bigger audience that finds us on Facebook and Snapchat. When did you figure out, oh, we're going to reach a lot more people away from our site than, than on our site? That just happened organically, or did you have to lean into that? Well, you've talked about that a bunch on this show, right, with people like Troy and Ricky Van Veen and a whole bunch of others. But over the last 18 months, the conversation has changed, where it used to be about referral traffic and how big is my .com, and it used to be just about getting people back to that, to a world that's now largely driven by mobile, social, and video. And that means that people are consuming your content away from your owned and operated side. And that's what's happened. And so, you know, for us, so that's the world first, you just you just figured it out. Everybody has figured that out over the last eighteen months, right? Largely as a result of two things: one, it's mobile; the other one is video. And video is driving, you know, off-site consumption more quickly than anything else. And of course, so are platforms like Snapchat, right, where you have an unbelievably engaged audience, and there are no mechanisms to drive anyone off of that platform. It's all about engagement in that channel. And so the world has changed over the last 18 months in, in profound ways in which you need to have a stronger brand than you, know, you probably ever had before because people are consuming your content away from you know, its shell, so away from its home. So we spent 25 minutes talking about how important the brand is and the brand is yeah. more and, and people respond to the brand. On Facebook in particular, right? Yeah. Like you're in a feed, you may you may very often not understand what you've clicked on or what your video you're looking at. It's just sort of in your feed. How do you sort of reinforce the idea that this is a Refinery29 article or video if you're seeing it on Facebook? You need to have a strong voice. You need to have great creative, great photography. You need to have a video style that seems consistent and makes people understand that it's coming from a place that connects back to, you know, the mothership. And so... You know, in this specific moment in this ecosystem, it's about figuring out how you leverage that brand to exist removed from, you know, your own and operated website. So all of those things are critical in making people realize that you're, you know, you're speaking to them 
on Facebook or on Snapchat, but it's still coming from your brand. So Snapchat, right? You've got a Discover channel. You guys have gotten some interest in that. Uh, there was a great journal article last year about yeah. how you guys built this thing up. I mean, you've got a dedicated team of how many people building your Discover channel? About 10. 10 people. Um, and was that from the get-go? You said, well, all right, we're going to discover, we're going to throw 10 people at it, or did you start with one or two and then build up as you went? We probably started with five or six and scaled up pretty quickly. But of course, we took those people you know, within the walls of our own company, you know, people who are already passionate about it, and, uh, and said, okay, today, you know, as of today, you're all moving into this room. This is the like, Snapchat cave, and this is like all, it's everything about Snapchat now. And is working in the Snapchat cave a coveted job at Refinery29 or oh, yeah. a punishment? No, it's a good thing to be in the cave. Oh, it's incredible. You know, I think what we've done with Snapchat and other platforms, and this is an important cultural thing, is to just sort of let people loose and give them the ability, if they feel passionate about something, to really scale it. Snapchat is a special example because, you know, it's already a huge platform. We're already, you know, you're monetizing it successfully. And so, you know, the emphasis on high quality is substantially more elevated than some, you know, emerging platforms where you just jump on more quickly and somebody is, you know, two kids are in the kitchen at like 730 and they're filming something and they're doing it on you now. But for Snapchat, it's a highly coveted job. You know, it's one of the, you know, platforms that we feel the most passionate about. You know, when you look at some of their latest stats, you know, in terms of reaching 18 to 35-year-olds on TV, you know, 4% of them are watching TV on Snapchat. You know, there's 40% of them. And are, are you making money from Snapchat yet? Or is this something where you're, you're getting an audience and you, you can make money today? Absolutely. You're selling ads, they're selling ads. So the people who are visiting the Snapchat channel are generating money for you guys. Yeah, so, you know, the thing about, the thing about Snapchat is that um, what's great is that we've been able to actually work with some brands directly in creating the campaigns that run, you know, every fourth or fifth story on Snapchat. And again, sort of leveraging our insights about this demo in creating original creative. So absolutely, it's still a leap of faith for the advertiser, right? Because there's very little data that comes back to you from Snapchat, and then even less that you can share to the outside world about who's seeing this stuff and where they are. Yes, but it's also the numbers, both in terms of scale and in terms of loyalty are at a scale and at a size in which anyone in their right mind is going to look at Snapchat and say, oh my God, like there are a lot of people and they're deeply engaged. So I think there is going to be more and more data coming coming out that's going to give you um, you know, the ability to you know, understand what does it mean for purchasing or what does this mean for brand love. But right now, what you have is loyalty. It's funny, right? Because we're, we're in a world where a big chunk of the digital world is under a ton of scrutiny from advertisers and publishers saying, look, we've got to be able to show me very specific results. We want very specific targeting. I want to reach this person sitting in this couch in this part of Brooklyn today. And then you got stuff like Snapchat, which gives you very, very vague data. Everyone's very excited about Snapchat. They're not held to the same level of scrutiny. It seems like it's the excitement around the platform that accounts for a lot of it. Yeah, well, I think that there's sort of a bifurcation there, right? If you um, you can buy direct response, super targeted advertising, programmatic advertising, and reach the exact tiny segment of the population that you want. But very often, the other direction is obviously, hey, I want to reach women. I want to reach women 18 to 35, and I want to get my brand message out there and do it in successful ways. And of course, you know, we do all the same things that anyone else does. We measure awareness. We measure transactions. Uh, we do brand lift studies. And, you know, with regards to, again, Snapchat, what you have is you have 
a very, very scaled audience and you have deep loyalty on the platform. And I think they were doing it and we've been doing it in experiments with brand partners where we're leveraging sort of our insights about, hey, how do we present this beauty brand in the right way with interesting creative, right? That isn't just sort of a standard standard ad clip. Is there stuff you're learning within Snapchat that transfers to other channels or is it really specific and whatever works Snapchat is specific to Snapchat and you can't bring it to Facebook or platform to be named in the future? You know, every platform is different, but what's interesting to me about Snapchat too is that some of the same rules that apply to things like how do I market to our email newsletter subscriber actually also hold to Snapchat. What's the first story that's going to get someone's attention, right? Snapchat is about loyalty, and I love that about the platform. It's not just about indiscriminate scale. It's about how many times are people coming back. For us, 55% of people are coming back three or four times a week. And email is a very similar proposition. You look at the first story, what gets someone to click into a story and then spend time on it. And so I actually walked away realizing that some of the same mechanics that hold for any other of your distribution channels also hold for Snapchat. It just seems a little bit more mysterious. So once you get past the vertical video and the fact that so much of this is mysterious, it's it's in the end, it's programming, you're trying to get people's attention. Exactly. To come back. Exactly. So at the beginning of our conversation, you said you had 400 folks, give yep. or take. Uh, you're going to do 100 million this year, give or take. We comfortably in the nine figures. Nine figures comfortably. You've raised a bunch of money. I hear you're out raising more. Um, at what point do you think, all right, this is a standalone we're not, company? We're not raising money right now. Uh, but yeah, but everyone thinks you're about to raise money. Well, I think there's, you know, there are few large-scale media companies that have great brands. And so I think that's something that like anyone would say at any given point. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. I would not be surprised if at some point this year you announced you raised money. But my bigger question was, at some point, do you say, all right, this becomes part of even bigger media companies' portfolio, or is this always going to be a standalone business? You know, not to, to sort of use the Google motto here, 1% mission accomplished, it truly feels that way. You know, we're 11 years in, which, you know, you thought the company was those three or four years old. It's a long doing time a to long grind time. out a company. But we could talk about that too, by the way. It's a long time and it can get crazy, but it's also the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. And, you know, the way we've built the business still feels true to our founding mission. It feels 1% accomplished and the opportunity keeps getting bigger by the day. And, you know, there's two things right now that are that we're looking at, where we're seeing scale that goes far beyond where we are today. The first one is video, right? Internet truly is eating TV. And the second one is the global expansion. And because of the ability to scale these platforms that are truly connecting people globally, you can now scale a media company in ways that, you know, Hearst and Condé never could. Which um, which is more important to you this year, video or growing internationally? First video. Yeah. But the global piece is right there. And after. video is Facebook video, it's selling TV shows, all of the above? It's all of the above. So we have um we have a really broad approach with video. So we are obviously pursuing short form for platforms like Facebook and and Snapchat and creating amazing original content there. But we're also producing long-form work. We just released two products at Sundance that are truly long-form documentary work. Or one is a project where we're releasing a short film once a month to promote female filmmakers in the industry. We are producing live. We're producing VR. We're producing 360. We're doing comedy. We're doing scripted. We're doing documentary. So... 
there is just this incredible momentum right now in the video space. And of course, it's all about the TV bundle, right? Because you have this bundle that has existed for decades and brands are going to come off that bundle. And over they're going to come off that bundle, meaning they're going to stop advertising there? No, meaning like there's a ton of channels and you're watching 10. Right. So there's a ton of you know, assets that are out there that are sort of irrelevant to our audience. And so new brands that have come out of the digital world will move into that future bundle to be debated what the future version of that bundle looks like and in what Do you want to be one of those brands in whatever version of that bundle Absolutely. gets created? Absolutely. And that's and the opportunity this year is, to, it's is the, to build that. Well, it's the opportunity this year, and it will be the opportunity out for the next couple of years. But I think this year is the profound year where the changes that have you know, had people talking about the disruption of television are really coming to bear. And so, you know, we're putting a great amount of effort and resources into video. It's the most exciting way of, you know, of telling stories. And, you know, to us, it's squarely where we see the business position over the next, you know, four or five years out. You're, I think you are the first person I've had on this podcast whose parents I've met. I got to, I got to talk to you guys <laughs> last fall. They, we, had, they, we had restaurant. We had dinner. Your mom in, owns an uh, awesome in, restaurant in Cologne. Cologne. Cologne? Cologne. Am I pronouncing it correctly? In, in Cologne. Cologne. I'm not going to So we had dinner uh, during the Mexico in are they, Cologne. Are they proud of you or do they want you to come back and, and run the family business? Uh, they're proud. Good man. They're proud. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. There's plenty more of this stuff. You can all find it over on iTunes. You subscribe there. Leave a review. That'd be good, too. There's other Recode podcasts, which I also endorse. I bet Philip would as well. Kara Swisher has one. It's the Recode Decode podcast. Lauren Good from The Verge has Too Embarrassed to Ask. Recode Replay has all the awesome conference audio. All easy to find on iTunes, so go find it. We'd like to thank our sponsors, SoFi, Mac Weldon. Again, I'm wearing their socks. Philip's wearing the underwear. And FrameBridge. <laughs> Thanks also to Digital Media for making all this possible. This is Recode Media. I'm back next week with Dan Lyons, who has an awesome new book called Disrupted. It's great. See you next week.